From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So I am John Plotz. Elizabeth Ferry is Elizabeth Ferry. Hello, Elizabeth Ferry. Hello, indeed um, I am. Uh, and our guest today is Adana Usmani. Um, hey, Adana, welcome. Hi, John. Uh, Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for having um, me. It's so great to have you. So I will say that you are a Harvard sociologist and co-author of a terrific recent article on the origins of mass incarceration in the academic, I said academic slash activist journal Catalyst. So I, I well hope that's described. a good way yeah. to throw it. Okay. <laughs> um, we invited him today to tell us basically about the subtle genealogy that he and his collaborator, John Clegg, propose in that article. And it's, so it's one that takes America's systemic racism and structural inequality seriously, but proposes new ways of showing how those systemic forces produced, both directly and indirectly, the scourge of mass incarceration and related ill effects on this country's social fabric, sort of from 1970 on. So Elizabeth, let's just say as long as you and I have been alive, pretty much. Um, as always, we will run that conversation through an older text that glows in a new light when we return to it from 2020. Today, Adana has brought a uh, sparkling chapter from a century-old book by W.E.B. Du Bois. And then we'll turn back to the present to hear Adana's thoughts about the normative implications of his work. If he and Clegg are correct, then what follows is a pro program for viable political action or structural change? That's a very small question, and I'm sure we'll just polish that off. No problem, maybe five minutes. Uh, and then, as always, we conclude with recallable books. Um, so, um, Adana, let's start with your article. We have a link in the show notes. It's called The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration. So maybe you just begin by telling us about it. We'll pepper you with sort of pesky questions. You'll swat us away, and we'll, we'll see how we go on. Excellent. Thanks, John. I think maybe it will help to start where we start in the essay and what was sort of the beginning of the project that uh, John and I are now working on, which is with the, what we perceived as the weakness of the conventional story that's typically told about mass incarceration. And that's where we start in the essay as well. So maybe what I'll do is I'll summarize what I see as the weakness of the conventional story, pause, we can discuss it and then move on. So great. in the essay, we argue that there are, there are basically three weaknesses to this conventional story. And first, I should actually outline the conventional story, obviously. So the conventional story that's told about why we have mass incarceration and why it started in the 1970s is that mass incarceration was a political response to the successes of the civil rights movement and the way in which the Great Migration had changed the racial order of the United States. It was launched by white political elites who were seeking to basically capture the South and were pandering to the racial animus of working class whites. And they centered that politics around law and order. The punitive policies that were the result of that brand of politicking were basically mass incarceration, more or less. And it, the argument goes very, very, very eloquently and famously put in Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow story that centers entirely on the war on drugs, basically. So I think there are three weaknesses that we can count in that account of why we have mass incarceration. One is that it, because it centers on the war on drugs, has very little to say about violence and the rise in violence in the United States. It's a fact that violence rose quite dramatically from the 1960s on, and that only a small minority of people in American prisons are in prison for drug-related offenses. So that's a first issue. A second issue is that 
as I was saying, the key protagonists in that story are white political elites. But increasingly, there's some work, probably most famously, James Foreman Jr.'s recent Pulitzer Prize winning book about Washington, D.C., that shows this is not obviously a story simply of white elites as the protagonists. And then finally, a third weakness is that it centers very heavily on elites, the traditional story. But one of the exceptional features of American criminal justice is actually its exceptional level of democracy when analyzed in international context, rather than its exceptional lack of democracy. American criminal justice is democratic in ways that other countries are other countries' criminal justice systems aren't. So the focus on uh, uh, the focus on elites operating at the federal level obscures the importance of local and state level democracy in the criminal justice system. So those three problems that led us to led us to the research that became this article and is now the book that we're working on. Okay, so um, based on the way you're putting it, it does feel like we should start at the top because you mentioned the new Jim Crow, which I think is probably to a lot of our listeners would be their reference point. But can I just put a marker down that that final point you make about the widely distributed nature of justice, which you describe as it being very democratic. Mm. It seems to me one of the things I loved about your article is that you have a subtle analysis of where problems are solved, whether on the local level, the state level, or the national level, and where the authority rests actually has some indirect consequences. So one of your points was that solving social problems can be very expensive, Mm. um, whereas ironically, incarceration can seem cheaper than solving a social problem, even though we all know that in the long run, solving a social problem is cheaper. But you make a point about how in a lo- from a local jurisdiction's perspective, it might seem cheaper in the short term to lock people up rather than to solve the underlying problems that causes a rising crime. So maybe can we start with that side of the argument? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, 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 that's, I think that is a, that's a, important part of the account that we give for why America responded basically to the rise in violence with penal policy rather than social policy. Because I think backing up, it's important to recognize that states have many, many options for how to deal with crime and violence. And speaking a little simplistically, there are two poles, right? One can fight crime and violence with social policy and social programs and attack the root causes of crime. This has kind of been liberal common sense for decades and decades or a state can fight it by locking people up and throwing police at the problem. Obviously, in some sense, what we're arguing is that mass incarceration represents the decision of the United States to take the latter route rather than the former. But as you're saying, one thing that has to be understood and one thing that we argue in the essay is that that's not a choice between equivalently costly options for a state. And in effect, what hasn't really been noted, I think, in the critical literature is that mass incarceration, policing, they're remarkably inexpensive solutions, quote unquote, solutions to the problem of crime. And the reason basically is that prisons and police are hyper-targeted interventions in the lives of people who commit crime. Whereas social policy to be politically effective, but just more generally, social policy is indiscriminate and untargeted. So social, social policy goes to all poor people in effect, whereas prisons and police are targeted at that very small, small minority of poor people who end up committing crime. So the result is that even in the United States today, which is the, you know, welfare state laggard and the prison police capital of the world in some respects, the United States spends more money on 
prison uh, on social policy something like 10 times more money on social policy than it does on penal policy. It's just that it spends less. It, that ratio is very different in the United States from it is in other countries. Like other exactly. countries spend way, way more, more their, their ratio of how much they spend on social programs to how much they spend on incarceration is, is much higher than ours. Exactly, exactly. So we present some of these numbers in the, in the piece, but uh, from memory, the ratio in the United States is around 10 to one. And of course it depends on exactly how you count social policy, but it's around 10 to one. Whereas in a country like Denmark, it's 40 to one, right? Okay. So there's, there, the big ambition of the piece is really to stitch together two literatures on American exceptionalism. One literature on American exceptionalism and punishment and make the argument that that literature can be profitably combined with another longstanding literature in social science, which is the literature on the underdevelopment of American social democracy, the underdevelopment of the American welfare state. Okay, yeah, that's great. And so, so, so I totally hear you saying that the big picture there is the underdevelopment of our social, like we went from being social welfare leaders back in the Gilded Age to becoming laggards, you know, and we have been for more than a century now, which is an amazing fact in terms of the self-conception of the country. Right. In the article, you distinguish between, you know, this approach of, of looking at the root causes or investing in improving the root causes uh, in order to prevent uh, violent crime. And then the other option is a punitive response. But also there's other, there are different kinds of responses which are not punitive. I guess this is what you're now describing as severity, right? Mm. And I mean, we can certainly, you know, this is one of the things that like, you know, when, when people ask people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about, you know, school to prison pipelines and stuff, she talks about how in um, suburban, you know, mostly white communities, teenagers do stuff and they get, you know, sent to what's called diversion, mm -hmm. right? Which is like, you go and you sit in a room with a social worker and you do, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. it is you do, right? Yeah. I'm not admitting that any member of my family has ever had to uh, <laughs> undergo <laughs> <laughs> but I get my information entirely from third party sources. But um, that's like a that's a third way in a sense, right? Or it's a or it's another way. Yeah, I think that's a I think it's a really good point. What I would say, I suppose, if you want to think of it as pushing back a little, maybe, is that or I, well, I'd say two things actually. One thing that I'd say in response to that is that what relate the way that that point relates to the argument of our essay is that those kinds of interventions I see, I, I think are extremely resource intensive, right? right? And so it's, again, part of the broader story of the unwillingness in effect of the United States to actually commit resources to the right. self development of poor communities, right? And a lot of these are often funded locally. Um, and so the paradoxes of American federalism mean rich communities have it, poor communities don't have it. Right. The other point, though, that I would make. Um, Wait, think, sorry, Adana, can sorry, I actually say something else? That That is federalism in some sense, but you would even want to specify further because it isn't just about federalism in the sense of states' rights versus country rights. You're also talking about local tax bases, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So in other words, that's, a, that's actually about the many levels of governmentality. Right. Totally. And, and so this actually relates to a yeah. point that you were bringing up earlier, John, which I think is very important, which is that one other feature of all of this is that American criminal justice policy is basically delegated to states and localities in the United States. And mm -hmm. one issue with that is that states and localities have least power to raise 
re revenue and redistribute from rich to poor. I mean, there are many reasons for this, but probably the simplest way to think about this is like a Ferguson, Missouri can never tax San Francisco's billionaires yeah. to spend right. uh, social programs right. on for in Ferguson, Missouri. And so that also makes criminal justice policy excessively, um, uh, that also makes the kind of complex of policy that we use to manage violence excessively likely, uh, exceedingly likely to be punitive and exceedingly likely to be severe rather than certain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, right. so Donna, I know that I know that John, to some extent, is the person who does the deep history among the two of you. But can we, in in bring in circling back to the question, the sort of Michelle Alexander question about race, yeah, and you know, the question of you know American racism, how it manifests, where the sort of follow-on effects are. Can we go to the sort of historical question of America as welfare laggard? Um, yeah. So the American, so so the American government doesn't centralize a lot of things that are centralized in Europe is that, or in other wealthy nations. Um, all, but also the American government, you know, historically was made up of states that had extremely different ideologies about how poor people Absolutely. were treated and also how poor people right. of different races were treated. So totally, right. totally. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are a couple of threads here. The first thing that I would say is that with regards to this institutional fact that we were just addressing, which is like, you can think of it as the overdevelopment of local and state property rights against the federal government. Right. That in my mind has everything to do with the history of American slavery. There's a, there's a great book by historian Robin Einhorn called American Taxation, American Slavery, which more or less mm -hmm. makes this kind of argument, which says mm -hmm. that the underdevelopment of the federal government's ability to sanction property owners at the state and local level is directly traceable to the influence of plantation elites on state development. Mm. The other thing, though, that I would say is that what's very important to the story we tell is the underdevelopment of American socialism, American social democracy, and the weakness of the American working class, in effect, the divided nature of the American working class. And that also has everything to do with slavery and the history of American racism. I mean, the reason that the American working class is divided in a way that European working classes are not is precisely because the nature of American working class formation is so deformed by American slavery and the plantation economy. And that's something uh -huh. that we also try and argue in the piece. Uh -huh. So it's sort of these two consequences that are both consequences of American slavery, the deformation of American economic development and the deformation of American institutional development by slavery. Uh -huh. But it's a different story, I think, than the story that someone like Michelle Alexander would tell, right? Where it's there, the causal link between American slavery and mass incarceration is in effect through American uh, sort of ideology of white supremacy. And that's, I would distinguish that from the kind of argument that we're trying to make. In a second, we should turn to the Du Bois because I think mm. the Du Bois is actually germane to this. Yeah. But the footnote I wanted to add is that Adana, you and I had had a kind of, not a disagreement, but a kind of a, a uh, working through of how we think about Piketty. And mm. one of the things I would say about Piketty that I really admire is that in this question of like where the causality comes from in your explanatory scheme, like which are the things that count as explanations and which are the things that need to be explained. The thing I really appreciate about his new book, which is distinct from the first book, and I think it may also explain why the uptake among social scientists of the second book has not been that great, is that in the new book, he actually thinks about ideological belief systems as causative. 
Like he's really interested in the change from one, like he wants to explain the rise of slavery and also the way that slavery morphed into other forms of what he calls proprietarian ideologies, like ideologies that really focus on the ownership of labor or persons or just property generally. And um, Piketty is really open in the new book and saying that like, you know, once a belief takes on a life of its own, it is causative. So for, you know, racism would be a good example of something, which is, it is, it, I, I believe Piketty's account, which is that racism is, cause, is, is called into being by the nature of slave systems. It is like mm-hmm. created by the mm-hmm. forms of ownership of persons that were necessary for early modern new world economies to work. But once it's called into being, mm-hmm. it isn't just that. It's a bunch right. of other things right. as well. But and, that doesn't make what your project, Donner and and and... John Clegg, right? Uh, what your project that that doesn't make your project not an important one. In some ways, it makes it more important because oh, of course, it's like yeah, it's taking on a life of its own. Race is taking on a life of its own, but part of its taking on a life of its own is its capacity to seem like a prime mover or seem like a like something that you don't need to inquire into further because either it's the way Probably. things are or it's the thing that needs to be taken down. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I speaking mean, of which, can I add one thing to that before we move on? Is that possible? So the, the only, yeah. the only the, it was, it's just a, a mild note of dissent, I suppose, to John, your formulation of it, which oh, okay. is that I think the danger in arguments that race takes on a life of its own is that it gives, and this is going to sound like a classic materialist rejoinder to your point, which is probably what it is <laughs> in some sense. But it's like the, the danger with those arguments is that I, I worry it gives ideas too much power in social life. And what I mean specifically by that in the case of racism is there's, there's a lovely quote from Stokely Carmichael that we have in our piece where Stokely Carmichael argues that if he, the quip is something like, if, if the white man wants to lynch me, it's no problem. But if the white man has the power to lynch me, that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah. And so I see those, I see those ideas as in effect, only powerful when they're allied to certain kinds of inequalities that give them. Okay, so I, Donna, I don't think we're disagreeing on this, but it's interesting because normally my role in this podcast is to thunder against sort of identitarian thinking, and I'm Uh. still against identitarian thinking. (laughs) Fundamentally, we're in agreement. But like, if you think about a book like Richard Rothstein's Color of Law, uh-huh. which is you know a book about yeah, like yeah, yeah. how the suburbs were called into being, and it's kind of a correction of the crabgrass frontier in that it says race is much more explicitly part of people's thinking. Totally. You don't you don't get the, the um you know the Stokely Carmichael point is it's the it's the mobilization of those institutions that creates the problem, not the original animus, mm-hmm. but you don't get the institutions mobilized that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that, but I think he's saying that you do sometimes. Yeah, I am. I am. In response to what you were saying, yeah. which was, yes. you know, the institutions are in part set up because of these ideas, right? Yes. Right. But isn't the, isn't the argument in the Catalyst article not saying that that has no role, but yeah. looking at all the other kind yes. of ways in which um, the racism of the institution is kind of a byproduct. Or yes, something. that's great. But too strong? I, maybe not a byproduct. Yeah, so. no, I, I, and I think what the other way of putting it, which is maybe equivalent, is what gives the what gives those institutions the 
power to determine social life in the way that they do. I mean, right. why is it that why is it that, say, for instance, the homeowners loan corporation had so much power to shape right. American life in the way that it did in the yeah. 20th century or whatever else? Um, and I think that's what I take Stokely Carmichael to be saying is that the underlying issue here is the inequality in power, which basically makes prejudice something more. Right. And that's, right. That, that relates directly to the Du Bois essay. I yeah, I was just going to say that's a perfect yeah. connection to Du Bois, because I, I think one of the points of this podcast in general is not so much to show, you know, how wise our 2020 hindsight is, but also to like be mindful of where the formulations we have have explained, you know, antecedents actually where people a century ago were seeing things in similar ways. So yeah, in that light, Adana, why don't you talk, talk, us, talk to us about Du Bois? Yeah, so the, the reason that I thought that this essay would be a nice essay to revisit is because I... Can you just tell that, us the... Can you just tell us what the oh, essay is? Oh, sorry, yeah. So this is published in the collection Darkwater. It's the fourth chapter called Of Work and Wealth. The essay is an attempt in, in some ways to kind of explain working class disunity. This is how I read it. Working class disunity in East St. Louis. And his argument is very similar to the argument that we try and develop in the catalyst piece, which is to say that he's arguing in effect that American proletarianization was odd and different from European proletarianization in the sense that America, I'm not sure if he says this explicitly, but this is, this is in the backdrop. America is industrializing with Europe's peasantry rather than its own in effect. And during the industrial boom, it's, in effect, then white ethnics who take the first jobs of America's industrial revolution and African-Americans are stuck in the plantation economy in the Jim Crow South. When they start to finally move to cities and to come north, jobs are starting to disappear. Jobs are both becoming as a consequence scarce, labor markets are becoming tighter. And then also the character of American institutions means that they're competing for scarce public goods with white ethnics, with established white ethnics. And I think for me, the message of Du Bois's essay is basically in that powder, out of that powder keg, there was just no chance that you were going to get a powerful, united working class movement. And in fact, that that those fundamental structural divisions within the working class gave white business owners the ability to divide the working class with all mm -hmm. manner of racism mm -hmm. um, and and, and key decisions on the part of labor unions too exactly yeah to absolutely and, and so as a consequence the, the american labor movement sorry i think i spoke over you elizabeth but the the american labor movement basically formed along these racial lines these extremely profoundly uh, these ways that had extremely profound con long-term consequences for its development. If we can go back to that question of like the Michelle Alexander sort of fatal taint or hidden flaw, can you talk us through, like what's your conception of the, the, the United States becoming a welfare laggard around the time of the Gilded Age? Yeah. Like, do you see that as already baked into structural differences between the American way of thinking through these issues versus Europe? Or is there a contingent quality to them? Because I just think, you know, we, we have these yeah. stories, like if you think about the rise of the New Deal or something, yeah, we have this yeah, story yeah. of America as being immensely adaptive with its yeah. wealth. I think the story of America's divergence is, is the, the, way to, the way to start to tell that story is to understand when it happens. And when it happens, John, as you're saying, is basically 
between 1890 and 1930. In 1890, America is not a laggard. I mean, this is a world with not very much redistribution from rich to poor, but America is not a laggard in 1890. And the way that I think about this is that 1890 to 1930 is a period in which American politics and political economy is marked by the kinds of things that Du Bois is describing in this essay, right? Whereas 1890 to 1930 in Europe is marked by revolutionary tumult strikes and the formation of the first working class parties agitating yeah. for redistribution from rich to poor. And that's all you need almost for the contrast, right? The contrast between the, as a consequence, the future of American political development and the future of European political development is to me set in that period. There's a very, there's a very good book that came out recently called so wait, Southern before you American. go farther, Adonar, can Sorry? I ask you, can I yes, propose yeah, absolutely. a, I just want to ask you a question about that. Um, if we're telling a story, a parallel story about Europe and the United States, right? But yeah, we already yeah. just talked about how um, the, it's the peasantry of Europe that populated the industrialization. Are those stories connected? I mean, is part of the issue that there's a pressure valve for Europe because all these people are leaving to go to the US in order to get jobs? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't know what the empirical literature suggests about that. I yeah. mean, presumably there'd be a way to look at it, but it's really plausible on its face, right? That, yeah. that European labor markets are getting tighter just at the same time as American labor markets are getting inundated by new immigrants. Right, um, right. And sort of European labor movements might find it easier in effect. to And there's a, you know, if in both places, there's a kind of um, surplus of former agricultural workers exactly, right. into an industrializing right. context. But if in one of those places, there's an out. Right. right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I, what I was um, about to mention was this new book that came out a couple of years ago by Ira Katznelson, who had previously written When Affirmative Action Was White, which was about the, the New Deal and it's, yeah. it's, it's in effect white bias. Um, he, he and some co-authors have written a book called Southern Nation, which is basically an analysis of what Congress was like in this period and particularly during the progressive era which argues in effect that the Southern plantation elite and Southern Democrats had massive power to shape federal legislation, not just during the New Deal, which was the focus of his other book, but over this entire period. And it, in some ways that is sort of, for me, that's the not contingent, but structural explanation for why America falls behind. It's a story of the power of the plantation elite to throttle American political development in a way that has no parallel on the European continent, where in fact, yeah. the opposite is happening. Uh, Europe is erupting in revolution. That's fascinating. You know, there's a small scale version of that in The Color of Law. There's this analysis mm. of Southern, Southern Democrats subcommittees about housing policy. So you right. see that enacted in that right. local level, but it makes sense right. to me that that would be a larger. Well, but this is, this yeah. I think goes back to the, the disagreement, I suppose that we were having a little bit about um, the color of law and the role of racism as idea versus the role yeah. of racism as power relation. I mean, I see uh -huh. very much what's happening in the new, like one way of interpreting what's happening in the new deal is that the new deal is biased towards whites and against African-Americans because of white racism. And in one sense, that's true, but white racism, the way to explain it is the way, the reason that it has such hold is because the Southern Democrats have such hold over the democratic party and uh, the South, what's further back is the South has such power over American politics. They deform mm -hmm. the New Deal. I mean, and it's, it's in order to win the votes of Southern Democrats that 
Democrats exempt the agricultural labor force and exempt the South basically from mm. huge chunks of the New Deal. So I, I see it again as as a story of power rather than ideas. This might be a good moment to pivot to recallable books. And as um, longtime listeners will know, this is a moment where we pick out books that if you um, enjoyed this conversation, you would also find um, worth thinking about. And Adana, you've actually given us a ton already between Racecraft and Southern Nation and uh, you know a few other recommendations that we will pose, but um, that we'll post for our readers. But, but do you have a particular book you want to, or, or piece of writing you want to single out now? Yeah, sure. A, a, a book that I would recommend, which I was thinking about, uh, which I reread this summer and I was thinking a lot about is uh, The Collected Writings of Baird Rustin, collected in a title. Mm. I think the title is A Time on Two Crosses. The reason that I was thinking about this book this summer is because this is Rustin writing basically during, a lot of these essays are during the, the civil rights movement and he's struggling with, or actually during and right after the civil rights movement. And he's struggling with the question of how you take the civil rights movement and make it a national movement. And the big challenge here, obviously, is how do you build a civil rights movement in a country with a white majority? How do you build a political majority in a country in which you're a minority? And, and, and that, to me, was very resonant with the challenges that a group like Black Lives Matter faces today. How do you build a movement for change that is more than just symbolic in a country where white racism and a white and a white majority are enormous obstacles. Okay, so uh, we will just end by saying that Recall This Book is hosted by John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. We're sponsored by the Mandel Humanities Center. Music comes from Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing is by Clara Ogden. Web di website design and social media this semester comes from our newest RTB graduate intern, Nye Kim from the English department. And we always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media and our website. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. You may be interested in checking out recent conversations on bias in policing in America and in Turkey, as well as our Books in Dark Times series, which includes conversations with the sci-fi novelist Kim Stanley Robinson, the poet Elizabeth Bradfield, and a long conversation about Du Bois with the medievalist Sita Shigante. So Adonar, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. And, thank you uh, very much. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, and, and thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.